0: You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello, and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today we'll be hearing the story of a doctor who is combining artificial intelligence and radiography to ensure breast cancer screening can be available everywhere it's needed. Dr. Joe Logan is a British expat who studied medicine in the UK before moving to Australia to ply his trade and generally enjoy the climate. After founding several consultancies in medicine and online media, the serial entrepreneur is now undertaking a specialised PhD programme in artificial intelligence to help develop the IP that will underpin his latest venture, Elixir. The company is a culmination of Joe's expertise in medicine, entrepreneurship and computer science. And as you'll hear, it has plans to make mammography available to communities around the world where the rates of cancer far outstrip the number of radiographers available to diagnose it. Dr. Joe Logan, welcome to LabNotes. Thank you, Leo. Pleasure to be here. So you're a man of many facets, but can we start with the elevator pitch for Elixir?
1: Sure. So uh, Elixir was founded two years ago. Uh, We're working on solving the breast cancer problem Currently, at the moment, obviously, it's a major disease. It's the biggest cancer in females, and it all depends on early detection. At the moment, only 22 countries in the world actually implement a breast screening program. And the big downfall of the the screening process is that there's a lack of accuracy in what the radiologists can see on the screening tests. So Elixir, in in a nutshell, is aiming to improve that accuracy, uh, detect breast cancer sooner, and also look at whether or not we can bring the tech, because it's cheap and um, scalable, to the developing world where breast cancer is becoming an increasing problem. So many
0: startups have a public narrative around their product. There's also often a second narrative around the founders themselves. Can you tell us a bit about your co-founder Benson Riddle and how you two hatched this idea?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I started off in health tech in Sydney, I believe it was around 2012, 2013. At that time, I was actually working on a telehealth platform uh, and I got a couple of things published in the, it was a journal called Pulse and uh, Benson is a GP. So he kind of picked up on that story and then reached out to contact me. And it turns out that he was quite embedded in digital health himself. He'd actually worked for Telstra and Optus as a digital health consultant. So it became quite logical that we teamed up and I've always had an interest in AI and machine learning. Um, So we thought, let's find a market, let's find something that's going to benefit from this kind of tech, and let's see what we can do together.
0: So you bring a very diverse set of experiences to this role, from medicine to business strategy, web development and marketing. Um, I think we have to delve a little deeper into your personal history to unpack it all. You were born in England and got a medical degree from the University of Southampton. Can you tell us a bit about those early days?
1: Like you say, I went to medical school in the UK. Um, At that point, I was fairly focused on clinical medicine. I was actually looking at um, going into orthopedic surgery, but I've always had that interest in tech. I've always had that interest in the digital health aspect, And I think also just spurred on by the inefficiencies of working in the NHS kind of drove me to explore that aspect a bit more. I did do my internship in the UK, but soon after that, I, I moved over to Perth. I guess the thing with moving to Australia is you have to have a profession. And at that time when I moved, it was four years before you can apply for PR. So I did a number of clinical jobs in, in, in Perth and also in Sydney and Melbourne as well. And yeah, obtained my PR as soon as I could uh, and citizenship soon after. Um, and along the way, I did, uh, I did some flying training. Started off with the recreational license, which is RA which I did in Bindun which is a really rural part of WA, Um, and then went from there to do the private license as well. Um, I guess flying is always something I've been really passionate about. It's something I've been, I actually considered for a career when I was at school, but ultimately decided to pursue medicine instead. But it's never left me. It's always been a a strong passion of mine.
0: So it sounds like a lot of these jobs were perhaps a means to an ends rather than what drew you to Australia. So I wonder if it, if not the jobs, what, what did draw you here?
1: <laughs> the weather and the culture, I'd say, would be the main things. But, but as well, I mean, the, the working conditions were far more favourable in Australia than they were in the NHS. Um, when I left the UK, it was in, in quite a state of disarray because of the new EU working time directives. So it felt like a,
0: a good time to, to leave the country. So from about 2012, you're settled in Australia at this point and it was time, I guess, for your entrepreneurial itch to be scratched. You, you co-founded two related consulting businesses on Media and MedSquared. Can you talk us through those those projects and your early experiences as a, as a founder and entrepreneur? Yes,
1: yeah, certainly. So as you say, I mean, the entrepreneurial itch needed to be scratched. So I think it was around about 2014, I decided to set up a kind of a boutique consulting agency, just to look a little bit further into digital health. And that was MedSquared. And I learned quite a lot from running that. It definitely got me embedded into the health tech scene in, in Sydney and led me on to do other things afterwards. So that was definitely a very influential time for me. And with On Media, that was a more of a web development agency because I wanted to learn a bit more about tech rather than health tech. So it's actually me and my brother. We set up a, um, an online marketing agency and ended up working for clients such as um, Westfield. Um, did some work for Diva and La Visa and uh, Sony Music as well. So it just moved so quickly, and it was just the two of us running it. So that was really my first taste of, of real entrepreneurship, I guess you'd say.
0: Yeah, and we often talk about mentors and relationships and those kind of things on the podcast. What was it about your, I guess, relationship with your brother that led you both to want to do this together?
1: I guess it was just love and fascination with tech, really. Both of us have always been very technical people, always doing things on the computer. And he wanted to move over to Sydney as well. So it just made sense that we start something and work on it together. He actually did a similar thing back in England. So he had the knowledge and the know-how of, of how to set up an agency and how to run it. So I learned quite a lot from him in that process as well.
0: Yeah, fair enough. And and these early projects on media and MedSquare, they, they were successful financially, particularly on media. How, how did you go with parlaying that in, into your future ideas and ventures? You obviously didn't stay in consulting, but it seems to have set you up.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think we're running on media for around about four years and the amount of value and knowledge that I got from that process was it was incredible and particularly around things like dealing with clients corporate clients and how to manage those relationships and expectations I feel that that kind of hands-on knowledge is really important for in terms
0: of entrepreneurship So 2014 was a year of transition for you. The consulting businesses were underway, but you took a significant break in which you travelled the world, undertook an MBA, volunteered at a prosthetics clinic in Laos, and ultimately left clinical medicine altogether. Can you give us a sense of what this trip was about?
1: It was just a nine-month trip around the world, really. Um, Just decided to take a a bit of a gap and do some travelling and do some personal projects on the tech front. That was pretty much exactly at the point that I decided to leave clinical medicine and go into pure entrepreneurship. So it was really that transition period. I knew I had more knowledge to learn on the tech front. I just wanted to get some world experience, try and learn as much as I could, do as many courses as I could. And then my plan was to come back to Melbourne and basically get out of my comfort zone and do something different.
0: I also wanted to ask specifically about your time in Laos and the COPE Clinic. I understand it provides prosthetics and medical care for amputees, many of whom have lost limbs due to the large number of landmines and unexploded ordinances in the region. How did you become part of that medical relief effort? It wasn't something
1: I set out to do. It was more something that just crossed my path at that point in time. I remember going to a museum there and learning about the issues that that they'd had with unexploded bombs um, and the number of people that were dying just by taking a misstep when they're on the farm. So I, I wanted to kind of volunteer and help out with the knowledge that I had. And it felt like the right thing to do.
0: So it's 2015, and up till this point, Joe has found financial success and gained a great deal of experience running his two consultancies, On Media and Medsquared. But to him, there were still bigger opportunities around the corner. Upon returning from his round-the-world trip, Joe refocused himself on finding an opportunity for a more entrepreneurial startup and a technology or service he could call his own. I asked Joe about this transition from the consulting business model to following a startup mentality.
1: Yeah, so as you've said uh, previously, I've generally set up local stroke, state-based agency models. And I I guess I just wanted a bigger challenge. And I've always been fascinated in in machine learning. It's it's always been an area of tech that I've believed is going to represent the future. And I just saw an obvious opportunity with breast cancer screening. I guess the problem with breast cancer screening is it's, it's a supply and demand problem. Um, There's 100 million women per year that have a screening test for breast cancer. And it's it's basically just an x-ray of the breast. And at the moment, those tests are being looked at by radiologists, so specialist doctors, and it does become a supply and demand problem. There's not enough radiologists to properly look at the tests and give accurate feedback. And to add to that, because of the nature of the x-rays, they're quite low signal to noise. So even the estimates vary a lot, but there's somewhere in the region of about 10 to 12 percent of cancers missed by radiologists in a cancer where early detection is so crucial. We just feel we can make improvements on that. I mean, there's two ways you can look at it. The first way is, can we use AI to augment what's already happening? Can we tweak the accuracy? Can we save X number of lives in an established system? And DeepMind have done that. So they've demonstrated that by using a good curated data set, you can improve accuracy of reading, which I guess is where we differ slightly because we're looking at AI as a, not just something that might be able to help with accuracy, but something that could hugely help with supply and demand and cost effectiveness. Because if you can create a technology that could ultimately replace the radiologists that are supposed to look at the tests. You then create a system where the developing world can actually access this this knowledge and create screening programs out of nothing with, like, for example, in India, a population of 1.3 billion. We think there's immense potential for this kind of tech in the developing world, and that's becoming more of a focus area for us now.
0: So I know the founding of Elixir was followed pretty quickly by you and Benson pitching your way into some of Sydney's incubator programs, including Blue Chili and Cicada. How have you found these programs personally and what impact do you feel they've had on Elixir as a business?
1: Um, I mean, for us, they've been really useful. Our time with Blue Chili, we were actually the last company to go in under their traditional model, which was 200 applicants per place. So we were quite lucky, I suppose, to get in um, in that last cohort because after that they changed the entire model and they made it more program-based. But the amount of value that we've got from these programs has actually been quite incredible. Um, And also in terms of networking and introducing us to investors and contacts and people that can help us along the way, it's been absolutely second to none.
0: And it's not just the Australian incubator ecosystem you've been exposed to. In 2018, you won a pitching competition called Start JLM, which led to your co-founder Benson taking a tour of Israel and the startup community over there. I wonder if you two now have a view on how Australia compares internationally, and in particular, to the Israeli example.
1: Um, His opinion was that the Israeli tech scene, the the whole kind of infrastructure and the setup is just a bit more progressive than Australia. And he was actually very impressed with the way that the investors, the the accelerator programs and um, the infrastructure around startups was particularly in Tel Aviv. Um, I mean, I'll give an example. He actually went to a, a specific health tech accelerator, which was based in the biggest hospital in Tel Aviv, which is something he felt should be in Australia. Just putting entrepreneurs that are working in healthcare within the healthcare environment, he certainly felt that would be a valuable step because I think for health tech entrepreneurs, it's really important to be around the people,
0: essentially your, your target customers. So... I feel it's safe to say you've you've had a lifelong love of learning so far, at least. The medical degree would be enough for most people, but you've now thrown <laughs> in the MBA, four languages, coding, a pilot's license, <laughs> and now a PhD in artificial intelligence. Is learning driven by an innate curiosity for you, or you feel like you're fulfilling practical needs and knowledge gaps in your projects?
1: So it's an interesting question. Um I'd say my fascination with knowledge is it's always been there, really. I kind of feel like I need to be studying something or learning something new, whether that's doing a formal degree or whether that's learning material from online courses or books. For me, certainly, the learning experience is never going to end. It's never going to run out. There'll always be new things to to delve into. I guess it's just my approach to things and my personality.
0: And I guess a lot of the deep tech entrepreneurs we speak to kind of have their entrepreneurial idea during university research or time in academia and then dive into business after that. But you seem to have taken a reversed approach. You had the early entrepreneurial experience and founded Elixir before you mm. took on this decision to start a PhD in artificial intelligence. Can I ask what's drawn you into academia now and, and how you feel it's contributing to that overall ambition you have in the commercial world?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the primary reason I undertook the PhD was because of Elixir like you say yourself, I mean, deep tech entrepreneurship is usually around people with a very specific knowledge base. And I felt it would be a useful thing having the academic qualifications, but also being able to publish certain work. And it just so happens as well. I mean, the timing always seems to work out, but the PhD I'm doing is a different pathway to most people. It's, it's called a deep tech entrepreneurship pathway, which is It's actually a new program by UTS, which is really useful for working in deep tech because it gives you the flexibility of being able to run the business while contributing to to knowledge at the same time, which I found to be a really good fit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I wasn't previously aware of this program. and I'm not sure if people in the audience will be. Can you tell us a bit more about the deep tech entrepreneurship pathway?
1: Yeah, so… There were were only two applicants when I applied, and I think that was about a year and a half ago. It's it's a very new concept, and it's mainly around UTS, trying to attract people with a more practical outlook on academic work um, into PhD programmes. And, yeah, I mean, it it is essentially a PhD programme, but there's less of an emphasis on on a need to publish um, and more of an emphasis on developing IP and and moving ideas and businesses forward. So, I found the whole experience to be uh, really supportive, uh, really useful. I'm, I'm learning a lot from it.
0: Now, entrepreneurship is, is a difficult journey at the best of times, but doubly so for startups in deep tech sectors, including life science. Do you have any advice for researchers and other entrepreneurs who might be at the precipice of starting this journey? What, what have you learned that you think is valuable?
1: I'd say that the first thing would be to always try and stay as lean as you can i think general startup methodologies apply to deep tech as much as they do anything else so i think really it's that process of testing your assumptions early doing market testing if you can establishing the size of the market putting together a good pitch running it by people and really making sure that you've done the risk mitigation up front before you embark on the journey um, and certainly don't invest a lot of financial assets into it until you've, you've got to a certain point. I think it is that lean startup method,
0: which is very important these days. So it definitely seems that your entrepreneurial endeavors to date have followed that lean model. Do you foresee Elixir staying on that path? Or are you now looking to bring in some external investors to accelerate its growth?
1: Um, we're actually about to open around now. I guess you could say we're kind of looking more down the social entrepreneurship pathway now because, you know, we feel that this kind of tech is going to be far more useful in the developing world. And it's going to provide far more benefits to countries with large populations in those screening programs than it would do in, for example, Australia. So the answer is, yes, we are about to open a a round. We're going to be raising five million. But we'll be looking really for investors that generally play more in the
0: social impact space. Yeah, that's a really interesting angle. Since we're on the topic, I wondered, could you give us your perspective on impact investing generally and what an impact investor might be looking for in a startup that differentiates them from a more conventional angel or venture capital investor?
1: Yeah, so I guess the core concept is that an impact investor per se is going to be looking not just at the, the general return on investment, but also the social return on investment as well. So the metrics are slightly different Um making an investment decision based upon causing some degree of social change, but not at the expense of return on investment.
0: So in terms of the next steps for Elixir, you've obviously got this fundraising round, which will be pretty transformative for the group, and you'll also still have commitments to your PhD for the next couple of years. I I wonder how you're multitasking those roles and, and what obligations there are in terms of wrapping up your PhD with a thesis in that time frame.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, I think this is the appeal of the Deep Tech um, Entrepreneurship PhD programme, really, is that the work you do on the business is directly correlated with the, the research you're doing in the PhD. So I guess I kind of skip over that part of, of learning the knowledge base and learning the literature, and it becomes more of a practical version of the PhD. So, so far, I've managed to manage them both pretty well. The only addition, I would say, would be the writing the thesis is going to be a fairly big piece of work. So my advice to anyone that wanted to do that program would be to make small steps with the thesis as they go through the program. So they're not left with a huge 40,000 word document to write up in the last couple of months. Um, You know, it could just happen that the thesis is going to be due at the same time as some major event with the business. So it's just mitigating that risk, really. So I am trying to make steady steps towards the thesis at all times and I'm also about to publish a paper in a journal so yeah I mean it's it's not easy to do the two alongside each other but I feel the PhD contributes to the business in the same way the business contributes to the
0: PhD. So we're almost out of time but if people are interested to learn a bit more about Elixir and the fundraising round you're opening how should they get in touch?
1: Um, Best way would be to have a look at our website. Um, You can learn a bit about what we're doing there. Um, And if if you want to reach out or anyone wants to learn a bit more about it, I'm happy to have a chat. The email address is on there. Um, It's contact box. Yeah, so always happy to hear from people.
0: Well, Joe, we certainly wish you the best with filling your investment round and hopefully making some big strides both academically and commercially with Elixir. Before we go, the final question we ask all our guests is whether you've got any book recommendations for the audience.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for anybody who's thinking about embarking on an entrepreneurship journey, I'd highly recommend The Lean Startup. You've probably had that one mentioned before, I'd imagine. But for me, it's absolutely fundamental knowledge for anyone who wants to make that transition.
0: Yes, a a seminal book in entrepreneurship and hopefully one that's already on a few bookshelves out there. Joe Logan, thanks so much for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast. Thank you for your time, Leo. Enjoyed it. that's all we can fit into lab notes for this week we hope you enjoyed it if you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week lab notes is produced by eon labs in collaboration with brenny digital you can find links to both of those organizations along with our guest's biography and more in the description below our music is sourced from purple planet music and mixed by nat harris i'm your host dr leo stevens until next week keep inventing.